I need to say something by way of introduction this morning, which may be confusing for some of you, but it needs to be said nonetheless. This morning is one of those instances in which the difference between truth and error rests upon a razor's edge, as it were. The difference lies in the meaning of words. So I, I need you to pay really close attention this morning, lest I be misunderstood and lest you miss the eternal impact of this passage. Alright, so sharpen your minds this morning and open your ears because if we miss this, we remove all of the teeth from this warning, or we lose all of the hope of the gospel. And I don't want to do either one of those. One of the greatest dangers ever perpetrated upon the evangelical church, one of the greatest dangers that comes from one of the greatest lies that has ever been perpetrated upon the evangelical church is the notion that your salvation in no way, shape, or form depends upon your sanctification. That is, the notion that you do not actually have to grow in your love for, trust in, and obedience to God in order to enter into eternal life so long as your sins are forgiven through faith alone in Jesus Christ. I want to tell you this morning that that is a damnable lie that has destroyed the souls of thousands, maybe millions of nominal Christians, particularly in the American church. For the better part of two centuries now, while American Christians have been taught that we are called to holiness and obedience to God and that this is the path of greatest blessing in this life and greatest reward in the life to come, by and large, American Christians have not been taught that unless you actually become holy, you will not see eternal life at all. We've been taught that salvation is a static thing. It's It's a transaction which takes place between the sinner and God at a particular point in time in the past in which the sinner gives to God his faith and God gives to the sinner in exchange forgiveness and eternal life. And once that deal is done, it's irrevocable. Any change that takes place after that, any transformation of life that takes place after that is entirely optional. It's a mere bonus. It merely gives you more jewels in your crown or more rooms in your mansion or however else people like to think of that sort of thing. If you doubt that that's the prevailing theology of salvation in American Christianity, I want you to think of how many funerals you've attended in which the deceased, everyone knew that the deceased lived a life of unrepentant sin, but the pastor who was performing the funeral declared that that person was saved because they knew by, the, by, by some baptismal record or some mother's 
memory that some point in the past, particularly as a child, they had prayed to receive Christ. Therefore, what happened in their life after that is really of no account with regards to their eternal salvation. We can declare them saved on the basis of a past decision that bore absolutely no fruit in their life because, after all, once saved, always saved. This heresy has paved the road to hell for countless nominal Christians. Salvation is not a static thing. It is not a mere transaction that takes place at a point in time. We need to be careful about the way we use words. Salvation is dynamic. It is not a mere transactional point-in-time kind of thing. It is dynamic. The term salvation encompasses not only our justification. Now, let me define that term for you. Justification is the once-for-all declaration by God that we are righteous and accepted in His sight through no work, no merit of our own, but solely through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, grounded in His death for our sins and His righteousness, which is imputed to us by faith. That's justification. We sang about justification in the second song, Not in Me. But... Salvation is broader and more all-encompassing than just having in view our sanctification. It encompasses not merely, our justification rather, it encompasses not merely our justification, that point in time when we were accepted by faith in the sight of God on account of the righteousness of Christ, but also our regeneration, that's the awakening of our souls from spiritual death to spiritual life. And our sanctification, that's the progressive growth in love, faith, and obedience to Christ. And ultimately, our glorification when that sanctification is brought to completion at death and at the return of Christ when our bodies are raised and we enter into everlasting life. Now, I threw a lot of big words at you, and that's okay. The Bible uses a lot of big words. We need to know what they mean. It's okay to use big words if we define those words and if we define them rightly. Okay, so what I'm doing this morning, I'm saying, I'm suggesting to you that the Bible uses the term salvation in a much more broad sense than just the moment of your conversion. It encompasses when you were born again. It encompasses when you came to faith and were justified. It encompasses the entirety of your Christian life when you're growing in faith and love and trust and in obedience to Christ. And it encompasses the moment of death when your soul enters into the presence of God and it is glorified, and at the return of Christ when your body is raised. The biblical term salvation encompasses all of those realities. Therefore, no one will be saved who is not sanctified, because no one is justified who is not also regenerated and being sanctified and ultimately glorified. That's why the Bible speaks of those who are being saved, of those who have been saved, and of those who will be saved. It uses past, present, and future tense with regard to salvation. So let me state the case this morning very clearly, hopefully unambiguously, and then I'm going to try to prove it from this morning's text. All right, here's my thesis statement. I'll state it in two different ways, and hopefully one of those two will, will hit home. Way number one. 
No one will enter into eternal life who is still a willing slave of sin. That's thesis statement number one. No one will enter into eternal life who is still a willing slave of sin. Let me state it another way. No one will enter into eternal life who tries to serve two masters. That is sin and Christ. Now I state that thesis very carefully because I don't mean to suggest two things. I don't mean to suggest, number one, that the war against indwelling sin does not continue to rage all of our life long. It does. You, if you are a believer, you will fight against sin for the rest of your life. Nor do I mean to suggest that some who die in the midst of a battle against sin, appearing to us to have lost that battle, will not emerge victorious in the overall war on the last day, the day of resurrection. I'm not meaning to suggest some sort of Catholic system wherein if we die with mortal sins on our slate, we we can't enter into eternal life. What I am saying is that we are in a war against sin, a war in which eternity is at stake, and that those who acknowledge this fact arm themselves for the battle, and go forth to fight will be saved, and those who surrender to the oncoming assault and let sin occupy their heart like an occupying enemy force will be lost. And it is as simple as that. That's my thesis, and in order to prove it, I need to establish two truths. I need to establish two truths this morning from this text. Number one, We are in a war against sin, and what is at stake is our eternal destiny. I'm going to try to prove that to you from Jesus' words in verses 42 to 50. We are in a war against sin, and what is at stake is our eternal destiny. Number two, in order to emerge victorious in this war, drastic sacrifices must be made. Passivity will not win the war. So this morning, we're going to work through Mark 9, 42 to 50, and from the very outset, I'm going to challenge you to sit underneath the authority of these words of Christ. These words, this message is for you. It's not for them, it's for you. It's not addressing them in their sin, it's addressing you in your sin. It's not for them in their life, it's for you in your life. That's the challenge. Receive these words from Christ as addressed to you in the particular sins with which you struggle. That's the only way in which you will derive the benefit that God would have you to derive this morning from this passage. So, my aim this morning in the first half of this sermon is to establish, first from this passage and then I'm going to draw in a few other passages from outside of the Gospels, that we are in a war against sin and that nothing less than our eternal destinies are at stake. Let me begin by reading the text for us once again. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. 
And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire." Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. All right, so under this first heading, as you see in your outline, I'm going to try to make three points, and then I'm going to answer a possible objection that you may have to what I'm saying. All right, three points and then an answer to an objection. Point number one. Lest we imagine that these warnings are not addressed to us this morning, that they're not addressed to the church, that they're not addressed to the disciples, but rather they're addressed to those who are outside the faith, who don't possess that eternally secure guarantee of salvation, let's try and establish the intended target of Jesus' admittedly terrifying words. There is no textual reason to believe that the audience of verses 42 to 50 is any different than the audience of verses 33 to 41. In other words, Jesus is speaking to the same people in the same house in Capernaum, namely his disciples, that he was speaking to in last week's message. There's no break there. The house is most likely Peter's. The context is that private instruction given by Jesus to the 12 disciples, instruction that was prompted by their boastful conversation on the, on the road to Capernaum where they were arguing among themselves as to which of them was the greatest. So these words, watch very closely, these words were spoken to Peter, to James, to John, to Andrew, to Matthew, to Nathaniel, and to the rest of the, le- of the eleven who heeded Christ's warning, made war upon their sin, and entered into eternal life. And these words were heard by another, namely Judas, who tried to serve two masters and thus departed life into the eternal fire. So this warning is addressed to the church. It's addressed to us this morning, as is the case with all of the other warnings in the New Testament. The books of the New Testament were written for the church, and within every church, and within this church undoubtedly, there are wheat and there are tares. There are authentic Christians and there are pretenders. There are your Peters and there are your Judases. And the warnings are addressed to both groups. And how you know which group you fall into is is in large part measured by how you respond to such warnings. You want to know how real disciples respond to texts like this? They make war upon their sin. They take it seriously, they believe what Jesus is saying, and they make war upon their sin, making every sacrifice necessary. You want to know how false believers like Judas respond? They ignore them. Don't be a Judas this morning. Don't be a tear among the wheat. This warning is for you, and sitting under the authority of Christ and receiving the benefit that Jesus intends for this to have this morning among us begins with recognizing he's talking to me about my sin. Point number two. 
what is at stake in the war against sin is not, as I heard so often growing up, merely the loss of, the loss of eternal rewards. As if those who make war against sin and overcome it by the Spirit earn more rewards, while those who let sin have dominion over them escape and are saved by the skin of their teeth, as it were. That's not true. It's not true. Those who overcome sin enter into eternal life, while those who succumb to sin enter into the eternal fire. The stakes in this battle really are heaven and hell, and I think this is evident in two ways in this passage. Don't take my word for it. Look for it in the passage. Let me show you where I find it anyway. First in verse 42, Jesus says, he warns, those who by their sin cause one of these little ones who believe in me, which I take to mean believers who are weaker or younger in the faith. Those who by their sin cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin would be better off having a millstone hung around their neck and being drowned in the sea. Now, where on earth does Jesus get that kind of imagery? Well, there's a historical precedent for that image, and all Galileans living at the beginning of the first century would have known it, people like the disciples themselves. When the disciples were children in the year 6 AD, a Jewish zealot by the name of Judas the Galilean had led an unsuccessful revolt against Rome, during which his followers, known as the Zealots, had drowned those Jews who were loyal to Herod and therefore loyal to Rome. They drowned them in the Sea of Galilee. When their revolt failed, the Romans responded in kind by drowning the Zealots in the Sea of Galilee. According to Kent Hughes, quote, the apostles knew what Jesus was talking about, and in their imaginations, they could see the drowned bodies of the victims tethered to great millstones as they swayed to and fro in the current. They saw it as children. It's a horrifying image, and Jesus intends for it to be. And it raises the question, what fate is worse than drowning? Because that's the fate Jesus says awaits those who by their own sin cause those who are weak in the faith or younger in the faith, these little ones who believe in me to sin. It's worse than that. What fate is worse than death? I can think of only one. Eternal punishment. The answer can only be hell. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. So those who by their sin cause others to sin, it would be better for them to be drowned in the Sea of Galilee because the end of that of their sin, which causes others to sin, is everlasting hell. Do you see it? Second place I find this is in verses 43 to 48, where Jesus graphically describes the choice that lies before every one of us. In verses 43 and 44, look down there with me, those who cut off their hand rather than touch sin enter into, enter into life, while those who do not cut off their hands and touch sin will depart with two hands into hell, which he calls the unquenchable fire. 
Verses 45 and 6, those who cut off their foot rather than walk into sin will enter into life, while those who do not cut off their foot and walk willingly into sin will be cast with two feet into hell. Verses 47 and 48, those who gouge out their eye rather than look upon sin will enter into the kingdom of God, while those who do not gouge out their eye and they willingly look upon sin will be cast with two, hot, two eyes into hell, where Jesus says their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, that last phrase is a quotation from Isaiah 66:24 and is a reference to those who will be slain by the Lord in the final judgment. That word translated hell in each of those verses is the Greek word Gehenna, which actually comes, it's a transliteration of the Hebrew word Hinnom, and it comes from the valley of Hinnom, which is a steep ravine on the southwest side of the old city of Jerusalem. And it has... It has a rather shady history in the nation of Israel. During the reign of the wicked kings Ahaz and Manasseh, the Valley of Hinnom was the location of child sacrifice to pagan gods. You can read about this in 2 Kings 16.3 and 21.6. So in the days of those evil kings, down in this valley, people were killing their children in worship to demons. During the reforms of King Josiah... The practice of child sacrifice was abolished and the Hinnom Valley was desecrated and was made into a garbage dump where all of the refuse of Jerusalem was perpetually burned. And it is that dirty, defiled, horrific place filled with maggots and unending fire that Jesus refers to. According to James Edwards, Gehenna became a symbol of divine wrath and punishment in subsequent Judaism and in Christianity for the darkness, pain, and torment resulting from it. In other words, hell is a pretty good translation of the Greek word Gehenna. And because it is set in parallel to life, meaning eternal life, evidently this hell is also eternal. Do you see how that works in the parallel structure? Take the eye, for instance. Gouge out your eye so as not to look upon sin. You enter into life. What kind of life? Eternal life. Therefore, you don't gouge out your eye. You willingly look upon sin. Give yourself over to it. What kind of hell are you departing into? Eternal. You can't have eternal in one part of the parallel phrase and have a temporal in the second part. So, so you tell me, what is at stake in the war against indwelling sin? To the victorious, it is eternal life in the kingdom of God, and to the defeated, a fate worse than death, verse 42, on the burning trash heap outside the gates of the everlasting kingdom, verses 43 to 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. So I beg of you this morning, do not shrug off this warning as if it is for other people or as if it doesn't deal with eternal realities. It is for you and your eternal destiny is at stake. Now, does this notion that our eternal destiny hangs on whether or not we overcome sin find support in the rest of Scripture, or are we just merely misrepresenting this one isolated passage? 
Well, I, I submit to you that it does, and that it does everywhere. And we could be here for the next two hours, and I could go from Genesis to Revelation and show you that, yes, your growth in holiness is necessary to your entering into eternal life. And I thought that would be fun, so I hope you packed a lunch. No, I'm kidding. I'm going to take four passages, one from the Old Testament and three from the New, just to show you that this is the teaching of all of Scripture, okay? Number one, I'm going to take you to Ezekiel 36, which is one of the great promises of the New Covenant found in the prophets. And my purpose in taking you to this passage is to show you that holiness, sanctification, obedience is an integral part of the New Covenant promise, Look what God says through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land and I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses and from all of your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your forefathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. In other words, the people of the new covenant, according to God, will be a clean and holy people, having a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, being indwelt by the Spirit of God and being caused by that Spirit to walk in obedience to God's commands. Therefore, if someone does not have a heart of flesh, which is exhibited in new affections for Christ and new affections for righteousness, and if someone does not walk in obedience to God but continues to serve the idols of sin and self, then evidently they're not among the new covenant people of God, they're not indwelt by the Spirit of God, and they will not dwell in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. God's new covenant promise of putting the Spirit in believers who causes them to grow in obedience, that promise is never short-circuited in no individual Christian. In other words, there are no exceptions to that promise in the new covenant. If there is not within you the Holy Spirit who is compelling you bit by bit, growth by growth, day by day, to put away sin and to put on righteousness then the Spirit of God does not dwell in you because He is effectual in the working of His power. Second, let's go to Romans chapter 8 and let's hear from the Apostle Paul. Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Don't monkey around with that phrase. It means what it seems to mean. If you live... According to the flesh, if you live a life that is characterized by, by fleshly lusts and desires that are contrary to the will of God, God says you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Life and death are at stake in this battle against sin. 
rising up against the enemy of sin, waging war against it by the power of the Spirit, making every sacrifice necessary, cutting off hands, cutting off feet, gouging out eyes, results in life. Succumbing to sin, just laying down before it and letting it have its way, results in death. Third, let's go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, where the author urges his readers to strive for peace with everyone and strive for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Two points important in that verse. Number one, no one's going to see the Lord unless they have holiness. And number two, holiness does not come to those who passively wait for it. It comes to those who strive after it. Finally, let's go to the book of Revelation, where God differentiates between those who will inherit the new heaven and the new earth and those who will enter into the lake of fire. Revelation 21.7, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. Okay, what does it mean to conquer? Well, in the very next verse, John describes, or God rather, through John, describes what it looks like to not conquer. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Those who conquer, what? Sin. Namely, those who conquer the sins listed in verse 8 will inherit the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Those who do not conquer, but rather live lives that are characterized by these sins and others, their part is the lake of fire. So yes, I'm convinced, are you? We are in a war against sin, and the stakes of this conflict are heaven and hell, eternal life and eternal death. And with the stakes that high then, defeat is not an option. Right? I mean, isn't that just logical? Therefore, every measure must be taken in order to achieve victory. There should be no sacrifice that we are unwilling to make in order to win. Third truth to draw from this passage under the heading of the stakes of the war is that there is collateral damage to sin. As in any war, there are casualties not only among the combatants, but also among the civilians. For instance, when a bomb drops on a munitions factory and the resultant explosion kills the family in the house next door, that's called collateral damage. It is the unintended yet inevitable consequence of war. And the same thing is true in the war against sin. In other words, it's not merely our eternal destinies which are at stake in the battle against sin. Our sins can have devastating consequences upon others, particularly among the little ones. Those who are young in the faith, those who are weaker in the faith, and probably mostly those who are just young. The textual links between verse 42 and the verses preceding indicate that Jesus still has the context of verses 38 to 41 in mind. In other words, he has a particular sin in mind, namely, John's trying to stop the unnamed exorcist who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. 
The disciples were in danger of discouraging that brother in the faith and causing him to stumble. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't cause other believers to stumble in the faith. I want to read you one commentator's remarks. He says, quote, Mark 9.42 is a sober warning against inhibiting, injuring, or destroying the faith of simple and ordinary disciples. The Greek word translated cause to sin means to cause to stumble or to offend, and in this instance it refers to destroying the faith of a fellow believer or causing a believer to fall away from God. The punishment for such an offense is calamitous, end quote. In 1 Corinthians 8.11, Paul warns us not to destroy the faith of the weaker brother for whom Christ died, specifically in reference to the exercise of our freedom. There are always people watching your life, always. Your own children, the children of this church who look up to you, brothers and sisters in the church who may be younger or weaker in the faith and look up to you as a model of how to follow Jesus, and all of them are affected by our sin. So bear this truth in mind. It's not only your own eternal destiny that is at stake in the battle against sin, but the eternal destinies of others. And heed this warning, and do not, by your sin, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Before I move to the second heading, let me answer a possible objection to what I've been saying, and it goes like this. Okay? And if this is a question that's arisen in your mind, that's good. It's good. It shows that you're thinking through the implications of this. Here's the objection. If you say that our eternal destiny is dependent upon whether or not we are victorious in the battle against sin, and if that's what you've heard me say, you're right, that's exactly what I've said, then does that not make our salvation dependent upon works rather than grace? Any of you thinking that? It's okay to admit so. It's good. I thought through that. It's a good question, but my answer is no. Salvation remains entirely of grace. We remain justified and accepted before God by virtue solely in the blood and righteousness of Christ received by faith. And I'm going to give you four reasons why. So just listen really quick and I'll roll through these. Here's why I can say, on the one hand, if you don't pursue and achieve holiness, you will not enter into eternal life. And on the other hand, say, yet we are saved by God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, and that is no contradiction. Four reasons why. Number one, your sanctification, or though sanctification is necessary for all who would enter into eternal life, justification remains the sole grounds of our acceptance before God. And our justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of the blood and righteousness alone. No one, no one, no one, no one enters into heaven on the basis of their own righteousness. Those who enter will do so on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, received by a faith that then pursues righteousness. That's reason number one. You will get into heaven solely by virtue of the blood of Christ shed for your sins and the righteousness of Christ received by faith. Number two, good works are merely the fruit of true faith, and true faith is the only kind of faith that justifies. 
A dead faith that does not pursue righteousness is a faith which does not save. Therefore, the statement, only the righteous will enter into heaven, is no different from saying, only those with a true and living faith will enter into heaven. They're saying the same things. Because a true and living faith always produces the inevitable and necessary fruit of righteousness. Number three. The only reason true righteousness is possible is because we have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is a sovereign work of God alone, with which we had nothing whatsoever to do. Just by way of illustration, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, he didn't come forth from the tomb boasting in his own ability to raise himself and to walk out. He came out of the tomb boasting in Christ's ability to raise the dead. In other words, Lazarus' living and walking is merely the inevitable result of Jesus' raising. Even so, our good works, which are necessary to entering into eternal life, are merely the result of God's sovereign and gracious power at work in us, raising us from the dead. Therefore, all glory belongs to him and to him alone. Number four. Even the works of righteousness, even the pursuit of holiness and sanctification is merely the fruit of the Spirit's work within us. Sanctification is not a work of the flesh. It is a work of grace through faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you're pursuing holiness like a Pharisee and you won't achieve it as they did not achieve it. So in other words, when the author of Hebrews says, pursue that holiness without which no one will see the Lord, he does not mean grit your teeth and try your hardest to be good. That's not what he means. He means walk by faith, Hebrews 11, in the Holy Spirit's sin-killing, righteousness-producing power. That's what he means. When Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12, he does not mean bring your own salvation to pass by your own power. He means work out your own salvation by faith in the knowledge that God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there's no contradiction between the statement, you must kill sin or you will not enter into eternal life, and salvation is entirely of grace. When it comes to biblical theology, we need to be precise because a lack of precision is what got us into this mess to begin with. Words matter, and definitions of words matter. All right, now, Now that we've established the truth that we're in a battle against sin, that our eternal destiny is at stake, let's conclude by talking about how to emerge victorious from that battle. The simple truth is that if you are to win the battle against sin, which is a battle for your very soul, drastic sacrifices will have to be made. You will have to launch an all-out, costly, violent assault upon all of the strongholds of sin in your life. Passivity in the fight against sin will not achieve victory. You must, you must storm the strongholds of sin and destroy your enemy where he lies. That's the sense of Jesus' statement about cutting off hand and foot and gouging out eye. Now, you are reasonable, intelligent people And you know when Jesus is using hyperbole, 
when he's exaggerating for rhetorical effect. He's not advocating masochism or self-mutilation. Okay, so don't be like the, the early church father Origen of Alexandria who allegedly castrated himself in order to kill the sin of lust. If you do that, you will soon find that your hand, your foot, and your eye or any other body part is not your problem. The problem is your soul, which is infected by the disease of sin. So what Jesus is doing is giving a vivid, physical metaphorical example of what he's calling us to do in a very real spiritual way. The point he's making is that violent, decisive action will be required in the battle against sin. This is why I found this to be true in my own life, and I found it to be true in counseling. This is why when a man, for instance, comes to me and confesses that he's addicted to pornography, I've gotten to the point where I won't even help him unless he's ready to do two things and see if these sound familiar because they come right out of this text. Number one, admit that his battle against lust and pornography is a battle for his very soul and that heaven and hell are at stake. Until he's ready to admit that, we're not ready to do business. Number two, until he's ready to take violent action against his sin, namely cut off his hand, his foot, and gouge out his eye, which entails, at least in my prescription, making confession to his wife or to his girlfriend, loading covenant eyes on his computer, his tablet, his smartphone, and sending the accountability emails to his wife and to me. That's the decisive action, the violent action that I prescribe. Until he's ready to do those two things, he's not really ready to wage war upon sin. If he is to the point where he's ready to admit those two things, the battle's already half won. We take those steps, and then we begin to talk about how to put sin to death by the Spirit, how to attack the sin of lust by pursuing a superior pleasure in Christ and in all that he is and all that he has for us. That's the kind of violent action of which Jesus speaks. So in order to get very practical, and I hope therefore very helpful, let's divide Jesus' words into three categories. You see these on the outline before you. The hand. The hand represents what you do that causes you to sin. So the question is, what do you reach for in order to fill that void, that emptiness in your life, Yet when you've done so, you feel ashamed, guilt-ridden, and even emptier than you were before. What is that thing? Could it be, for instance, an illicit relationship with someone who is not your spouse? Maybe an online relationship with someone not your spouse. Is it an addiction to drugs or alcohol that you are using to cope in order to mask the pain rather than bringing it to light in order to deal with it? Is it an illicit source of income that you hope no one else knows about, which could get you into trouble, but you can't let go of it because you like the things that it buys? Whatever it is that you reach for to satisfy the sinful desires of your heart, cut it off, kill it, put it to death, because it's not worth forfeiting eternal life and departing into the eternal fire. Your foot represents where you go that causes you to sin. Are there places you go where you always manage to find yourself yourself in trouble? And if you were honest with yourself, that's why you go there. A gym where a certain person has attracted your attention. A social media site where you pursue relationships that you would never dream of pursuing in person because 
the, the anonymity of online relationships helps you be more self-confident. A place where you find yourself with people of the opposite sex where there is no accountability. You need to cut such places off because it's not worth the price of your immortal soul. The eye represents what you see that causes you to sin. Movies you watch, television shows that you devour, websites you visit, books you read, and the list just goes on and on and on. Cut it off, kill it, put it to death, and save your soul. When it comes to killing sin and achieving victory, passivity won't do. Listen to me very carefully. Merely praying about it won't do. Many, many people, when, when they feel overwhelmed by sin, or, or actually what happens is they fall into sin, they feel the guilt and the shame that, that, that just floods over them, and their response is to pray that God will take away that sinful desire. It's not enough. That's not what Jesus told you to do, is it? Jesus didn't tell you merely to pray that God would take away the sinful desire. He told you, lop off your hand that causes you to sin. Cut off the foot that causes you to stumble. Gouge out the eye that causes you to look upon things that you ought not look upon. Jesus does not call us to passive prayer. He calls us to active action. If that's the way you decide to attack sin, you will find yourself never victorious, always in the gutter of shame, having done what you've prayed for years that God would keep you from doing. Prayer is not the means of grace that God has prescribed in the battle against sin. Let me rephrase that. Prayer alone, that's better, I like that better. Prayer alone is not the means of grace that God has ordained in your battle against sin. Prayer and amputation of those sinful realms that drag you down. In the battle against sin, great sacrifice is required in order to achieve victory. And I think that's the meaning behind verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. What does he mean? It's a reference to the old temple sacrifices, which had to be accompanied with salt. What he's doing here in the new covenant, we are the living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, and these fiery trials, these battles against sin in which we make these painful sacrifices for the sake of victory and eternal joy, that's the salt that seasons the sacrifices of our lives that we present unto God, and it produces this pleasing aroma in his nostrils. But if we fail to make these sacrifices, we fail to fight against sin, our lives become unsalty, our aroma becomes unpleasing, and we are rendered unacceptable in the sight of God. So Jesus says, salt is good, but if it has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So listen, violent, decisive, sin-killing sacrifice is the salt that seasons our lives and makes us acceptable in the sight of God, and salty in the sight of others. John Owen, the great 17th century Puritan pastor and theologian, he wrote a book called The Mortification, or The Putting to Death of Sin, in which he famously said this, Mortify sin. Make it your daily work. 
Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. And listen to this. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And I say the same thing to you this morning. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Make war upon your sin. Send out scouts to every last recess of your heart where the enemy of sin may be lurking and then launch an all-out, violent, decisive assault upon all of those remaining enemy strongholds. Destroy it because what is at stake is nothing less than the eternal destiny of your immortal soul. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you.